Hi, I'm Chris. And I'm Ash. And modus operandi. I'm mostly true crime podcast. Today we're going to cover something a little bit different. Um, so this story is true crime inside true crime inside true crime. It's wild. Massive cover-up. Massive cover-up. This entire town covered this up for years. Murder. Intrigue. <laughs> so um, after the fact. <laughs> so this um, story was covered by Unsolved Mysteries years and years and years ago. I will link it in the website so okay. you can watch it if you'd like so i know people talk about unsolved mysteries a lot mm-hmm. it's one i am not familiar with like i don't know if i've ever seen a single episode of unsolved mysteries i think i'm gonna have to fire you as the podcast host of a true crime podcast if you've never seen unsolved mysteries we'll watch it when we get done it's just like <laughs> it's just like they kind of usually they do like three cases per episode it's like a short like maybe 30 minute show and they, 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 like, cover three unsolved cases in the show. But, like, um, the true crime guy with the deep voice hosts it, whose name is escaping me right now. Is it, like, a like, like a talk show? Or, like... No. A reenactment kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, it's, like, okay. a reenactment type deal. I don't know. Usually, if I'm, like, watching something, I want details. So, I usually go okay. for, like, the documentaries and stuff like that. And I usually well, skip, like, the overview shows. Unsolved Mysteries was kind of, like one of the OG, like, true crime. Like, before it was, like, really a whole thing. It was... That's where most of us got our start, I think. Um. I guess I'm just lame. (laughs) It's okay. So, I did want to just kind of go over... This is a blanket trigger warning for this episode. Um, there is sexual abuse of minors, talk of suicide, animal abuse, physical abuse, um... Obviously murder. So. Guns. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, if this is not your thing, no problem. We'll see you next week. It is a true crime podcast. Yeah. It is a true crime podcast. This one isn't early. Um, and I'm just going to mention again, animal abuse. Okay. So, the man we're going to talk about today, the victim, uh, his name is Daniel Packett. Yeah. <laughs> Um, his name is Daniel Paquette. He was born January 4th, 1949 in Manchester, New Hampshire to his parents, Arthur Sr. and Raina. He was the youngest of six children. So Arthur, Victor, Joanne, Marion, and Nadine were his siblings. Um, too damn many kids. Yeah. Him and Victor are very close. So that's the one that we're going to focus on. I'm not even really going to bring up the others after this. Um, but Victor is his ride or die, his right hand man. So, um, Daniel grew up on a dairy farm. He had a very strong work ethic, much like his father. The whole family worked the farm before and after school. Um, and that, like, strong work ethic, like, kind of defined Daniel Paquette as a person throughout his life. Now, in the winter of 1964, we're kind of going to dive into that story within a story thing real quick. Um, 
So in the winter of 1964, his mother, Rena Paquette, died unexpectedly. And suspiciously? And suspiciously. In the winter of 1964, just before she died, the citizens of New Hampshire were terrified, hysterical, and angry about the death of a young teenager named Pamela Jean Mason. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but it was a big case. She was 14 years old and looking for a babysitting gig. She posted her flyer advertising her services in the laundromat that Rena worked at. On January 13th, 1964, she took a job um, when she was called she was called about after somebody saw her flyer at the laundromat. Her mother had already went to work this day, um, so she went ahead and took care of her brother and made sure he had dinner and what he needed, and then she went left for her babysitting job. She never made it home. Um, the family in town scoured to find her. She was found eight days later on the side of the Interstate 93 in Manchester. She had been bound, beaten, stabbed, shot, and repeatedly sexually assaulted. Her, her case was quickly connected to the case of Sandra Valade four years earlier. Very similar situation. Um, again, I don't really have time to dive into all these details because that is a whole ass case in itself. But these cases are connected, and that case is connected to Rena Packett. That's the important thing to know. Gotcha. Um, That's overkill. Stabbed and shot and mm -hmm. beaten and then thrown out of a car. Yeah, it was just somebody that wanted to torture and hurt someone. Like, that was 100% just all that was. <clears throat> Rena had told her husband about her suspicions about the flyer and she think her thinking it was connected to um, the little girl's murder. And Arthur told her to stay out of it. He said, stay out of it. You leave it alone. It's not, it's not our business. Don't get involved in real life murder. Mm -hmm. Because that's how you die. But Rena did call the person who she believed was the murderer. She called his mother. Because this is a small town. Everybody knows everybody. So she called his mother and was like, this is what I think happened. So a, f a few days later, that woman called Rena back. Basically, it sounded like the woman wanted Rena to turn the son in. Okay. So, that's what Rena did. She called the police, let them know everything that she knew. Um, the, the killer Rena believed to be the person that killed Pamela Mason was a 25-year-old man, family man, and bakery delivery driver, Edward Coolidge. This man had violent tendencies and was unaccounted for at the time of Pamela's murder. There was some point where the police tried to say that it couldn't have been Edward because he was interrogated that day from 2.30 a.m. Um, but he was released at 2.30 a.m. And the murder happened between 7.30 and 10. The murder of Rena. I don't know if I was clear. So Edward okay. was being interrogated by the police about the young so woman. So Rena called it in. She's like, I mm -hmm. think this is what happened. Yeah. Coolidge gets brought in for questioning. Yes. And then at 2.30 that morning, he's released. Mm -hmm. And then a few hours later, Rena is murdered. Yes. Well, she dies. Okay. Officially. Suspiciously. <clears throat> after reporting a murderer or a mm -hmm. suspect for murder. Yes. So Rena died that morning between 7.30 and 10 a.m. Coolidge's mother was the owner of the laundromat that Rena worked at and where Pamela had been posting the babysitter ads. Um, Coolidge had gone into the laundromat that week to visit his mother, and he took down one of the 
<coughs> flyers from Pamela, which is why Rena thought it was him, I guess. Um, so this morning of, of her death, Monday, February 3rd, 1964, it was 10 degrees this morning, freezing. Um, Arthur got up, the, her husband got up early to milk the cows before breakfast. Rena was making breakfast. Victor got dressed and went to school. Now all the other kids are on their own at this point. Danny, who was 13 at the time, had a dentist appointment that day, so she let him sleep in a little bit. Um, Rena spoke this morning about wanting to confront Mrs. Coolidge, and again, Arthur had absolutely forbid it and went to work. Um, Rena was receiving threatening phone calls and a very unhappy visit from Edward at the laundromat. Danny had overslept. Um, his alarm didn't go off because his mom probably turned it off to be nice, you know. Um, so it was 10 a.m. He had missed his dentist appointment, and he was wondering why his mom didn't wake him up. So he went downstairs, saw that the family had eaten breakfast, but his mom wasn't down there. Uh, he checked the barn and everywhere he could think of. When he couldn't find her, he called his aunt, who sent his Uncle Charlie over to check things out. Charlie was a cop in town, and about half a mile from the farmhouse, they saw a snack, stack of smoke coming from the pigsty. So, of course, they all ran out there. There was a log propped up as a buttress against the door, so they couldn't really get in easily. Um, and that just rolled there? Mm-hmm. Accidentally? Charlie kicked in the door, and Rena Paquette lay on the pigsty on the ground on her back, which is pretty unusual for someone having been burned to death. Um, just your natural instinct is to cover your face. Well, typically, if you're burned alive, your body instinctually goes into what they call the boxer's pose. Um, and she was laying, like, flat on her back. So her body wasn't, like, tightening like it typically would if you're burning right. alive. So because your instinct is, like, to cover your face, cover your head. So you curl in, mm-hmm. usually on your stomach. Typically. Like, on your knees. On your side, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so the fact that she was... In a relaxed position to me and to most people would say that she died before the fire. Or at least was unconscious. Yes. So if that was the case, then she couldn't have done this herself. But um, her death was ruled uh, a suicide. She was still in her house coat and slippers, so she didn't even put a jacket on before going outside in 10-degree weather to go out to the pigsty. But she had something quick to do, and the pigsties are usually pretty warm. But, I mean, there's, like, it was a good, this is a big farm. She had to walk quite a ways to get to the pigsty. You don't want the pigsty right up next to your house. I guess that's fair. So, Um, what's the theory, then, that she came out to talk to him, and he attacked her, like, right outside, and the kid, like, somehow didn't hear it? I guess so. That's weird. Mm Mm-hmm. But it was officially ruled... A suicide. Um, and Rena was a very, very religious woman. Like, very, very religious. So the family was not buying that at all anyways. So Edward Coolidge was arrested for the death of Pamela Mason and Sandra Vallade. Um, he was only tried for Pamela's murder at this point. He was given a life sentence, and the judge didn't see any reason to go through the whole thing again, I guess, because he figured he's in there for life. We don't have to keep doing this. But um, Coolidge was, was um, the smoking gun for him was he had some of Pamela Mason's bloody clothes in his car when they did the search. So, he was a good murderer. Yeah. 
Um, so January 12, 1971, Coolidge appealed the conviction to the Supreme Court on the grounds that the search of his car would violated his Fourth Amendment. He was offered a retrial but took a plea deal for second-degree murder. He was charged with 25 to 40 years in jail, and by that time, like, time spent had already counted. So he was scheduled for release in 1991 with good behavior. There was a media uproar um, to properly investigate Rena Packett's murder, but it was completely ignored. Um, two months before he died, Danny wrote on a letter wrote a letter to the media saying he was going to be attending Coolidge's parole hearing to confront him, and this created a lot of media. So after this, obviously Danny was thirteen when his mom died, and this was a very traumatic thing because he was the one that was at home. He's Plus. Wasn't he there when they were looking for his mom? So, like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, he saw her. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, burns are not pretty. Mm-mm. How about you go? So, Danny kind of developed a sleepwalking habit not long after his mother's death, and Victor was the one that kind of was his caregiver going forward in life. Um, it was one of the things that kept them so close, I think. Mm-hmm. Parentification, <clears throat> the icing on top. Mm-hmm. So Arthur remarried another woman a few months after the death of his wife, named Marguerite. Um, See, that's kind of suspicious. Um, I think it is and it isn't. I mean, yeah, some people think that it was suspicious, but honestly, I think some men, especially men of this time period, were like, they just couldn't be alone. They needed somebody to, you know, cook their breakfast and do their laundry and... They didn't know how to adult, so they, you know. I guess. But, regard, maybe he was just lonely. I mean, I don't know. Regardless, he married this woman named Marguerite, and Victor and Danny were still living at home. None of the other kids lived there, but they were all very, like, like, the kids, other kids still worked on the farm and stuff. So, like, nobody was happy about his marriage. Um... It wasn't long after this, Danny's about 15, he falls in love with a girl named Denise Messier. She was the girl next door. They worked together at a downtown hotel, and they were in love and being teenagers, and Denise got pregnant. She was sent away and did not return with the baby. It was a big scandal in this conservative little town, especially because she was a police officer's daughter. Teen pregnancy and the... Lawman's daughter. Mm-hmm. Yep. The shock. The awe. So Danny was drafted in 1968 during Vietnam. He was an infantryman. After basic training, he got orders to Germany, so he didn't have to go to Vietnam. I'm sorry, Stephanie he met in New Hampshire. So he fell in love with Stephanie. He got drafted. She has a baby, and she's going to stay in New Hampshire to raise the baby. After the baby was born, she moved in with him in Germany. They quickly realized that they had nothing in common, that Danny was very quick to anger, and he scared her. She moved with the baby back stateside and waited for him to come home. He was honorably discharged in 1971, and he moved back home to New Hampshire. He tried to adjust to home life. Again, it just didn't go well. Stephanie and him were still fighting. Kind of the pivotal moment was one day they were arguing, and Stephanie had drawn a hot bath for herself, and she was kind of letting it cool off, kind of getting the baby ready so that she could enjoy her bath. And so the bath was scalding hot, and he threw her in the bath with her clothes still on during an argument. Mm. Um, 
she threatened to leave him with after she threatened to leave him with the baby, and the divorce was finalized in 1971. Um, so I'm I'm just going through all of this because like we need to know who Danny was because it's kind of a big part of the story. It is the right. intrigue of the story. So Danny and Victor got very close after his second his, after his divorce. Um, Danny came home. He and him and Victor learned what learned how to weld from a friend of theirs and made careers of that. Um, in 1973, Danny and Denise had rekindled things. His first love. One of those dudes that just, like, has a revolving door of three or four chicks. Um, Denise had married and, and had a, a little girl while her and Danny were separated. So she was divorced and she had a baby. Dandy and Denise had this whirlwind-style romance. Um, what happened to the other baby, Danny's baby? It, it, she, he's with Stephanie. I don't think he ever saw her again. Oh, okay. Um, they promised to find that little boy that they had put up for adoption and build a family together. Oh, okay. They were married December 10th, 1974. Danny adopted her daughter, whose name is now Melanie Peckett. They had two more little girls together. Danny opened his own business in 1978, um, the welding business. In 1980, Denise wanted a divorce basically due to abusive, controlling behavior on Danny's part. Danny was not accepting of this. He was actually pretty obsessive. He showed up drunk to her job, calling, harassing her every day. Um, He showed up drunk one day and attacked her. Denise filed a restraining order. Danny had a plan after this. Um, Danny came up with this plan because he was so upset about all of this that he was going to kill them and then himself with a 45 caliber pistol. And he was not quiet about this plan. Like he told people in his in this small community and it got back to her. Um so I would she hope like hey this guy's going to murder you and your children. Yeah. Maybe you should do something about that. Yeah. And she did. She moved in with her parents and um called the cops and before he was arrested, he did chase her to work and there was like a car chase on her way to work because he was like trying to get at her. Um, and she, like, drove to the police station and he was arrested. Um, you know, rightly so, obviously. The court hearing the judge found him guilty of willfully violating the restraining order. He leapt across the table and lunged for the judge. He was restrained and committed to the county mental institution for a year. When that year was coming to an end, the caseworker for Danny called Denise, warning her that he would... That... The caseworker was still very concerned of Danny's violent tendencies and anger toward her. This man is still not safe, but what are you going to do? Yeah, basically, I guess they couldn't hold him any longer. So Danny did have a few visits with the girls that was agreed upon in the custody arrangements. But Melanie, his stepdaughter, her adopted daughter, I guess, kept calling her mom and grandfather crying when she was with Danny, very upset, wanting to come home immediately. In August of 1981, the divorce was granted, citing citing irreconcilable differences. They worked out a custody agreement and child support payment plan. When he went to pick up the kids one day for his next visit, Denise had cleared out the apartment, and Danny never saw any of them again. So we're going to talk about why that might have happened later. Just keep it in the back of your head. What, the never seeing them again, or the Mm -hmm. moving out unexpectedly? Both. Okay. I thought that was pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, Denise said of Danny, he was a person that could make enemies quickly. He was sharp with his remarks. He was cruel. He frightened me many times. 
He had no fear of repercussions. He didn't consider whether or not he needed to be liked. So around the time of his death, this is what the neighbors had to say of him. He just, they described Danny in one of two ways, that he was troublesome or that he was a hardworking, friendly neighbor who went out of his way to help the neighborhood kids. I guess he would like help them fix their bikes and stuff. There was one kid he's teaching how to weld who was there actually the day of his death. Um, he was not described as outgoing, but friendly if approached. In 1985, he was seeing a woman named Ruth Celeste. Uh, she was recently, she had recently moved to New Hampshire. In June, she kind of moved into Danny's house, but kept her own place. Basically, her moving in was not a mutual decision. It kind of seems like it just happened slowly and... She stayed over one night and then never went home. I mean, pretty much is kind of how it was described by Victor later. And there was a lot of tension between... Danny and Ruth's children. They did not like him at all. Um, the oldest was not traditionally masculine. He was very laid back, interested in music, and very smart and driven to succeed and have a good life and a I'm good sure job, I guess. Toxic masculinity Danny loved that. Yeah. Um, the middle boy, Mark, shared many interests with Danny, but he was very messy and this irritated Danny. Like, he was just one of those people that, like, just couldn't handle anything out of his routine i guess mm. um and mark felt like his mom could do better than danny that was the middle boy and then the youngest boy was danny's favorite his name was hal he was agreeable to do pretty much whatever danny didn't wanted to do and he didn't argue about it so obviously this was danny's favorite Danny enjoyed to know exactly who he is or particularly what he wants so yeah he's he's kind of young and moldable yeah uh, Danny enjoyed working on engines and sculpting with scrap metal. He worked for an electric company, but he also did some freelance stuff for welding. So the day of the death, now that we've set the scene, we kind of know who this guy is. There were two people on the property the day that Danny died. Danny was at home. There was a man named Court Burton. Uh, and this was a teenager that Danny was teaching how to weld. He, a lot of, he spent a lot of free time at Danny's house. And a man named Durante. This was a friend of Danny's. They were working on a truck together in a garage. Just, I just thought this was interesting. Durante had a teenage daughter that Danny had shown some interest in before. Um, and despite that, they were still friendly, I guess, but they just didn't hang out at Durante's house near his child. I just thought that was like an interesting, like... I'm just going to stay friends with the grown-ass man that hit up my teenage daughter. Yeah. Um, I don't really... A plus parenting. We don't know the whole situation, but that's... I feel like that's enough of a situation to know that that's fucked up. Yeah. Durante and Court were in the garage, and Danny was, like, kind of outside the building. They heard a loud noise, and Danny was out welding the tractor in the yard, so they kind of thought that he arched himself with the welder. And he was found lying flat on his back, arms outstretched. He was still wearing, wearing his leather gloves. Durante picked up Danny's legs but dropped them, sent Burton to call 911, and since it seemed like Danny wasn't breathing, he started attempting CPR. There was a neighbor across the street outside checking his mail that saw what was going on, and Durante asked him to call for help. The man instructed his wife to call for help and ran across the street to help them. Court went and turned off and unplugged the machine and felt when it felt like it was safe to touch Danny without being electrocuted, both men attempted CPR again. At this point, they realized Danny was 
bleeding around his breastbone and his mouth. Durate came, got up to find something to stop the bleeding. Court continued chest compressions. Durate came back with a plaster of Paris and put it on Danny's chest. I thought that was an interesting choice. Like, to stop the bleeding. Like, I don't know, I guess it was inventive. I've never heard of that before. I guess British people call band-aids plasters, I think. Okay. So, maybe he was British. <laughs> or he knew a British person, but did not understand the difference. Burton showed back up, uh, this time saying help would arrive soon. And then they heard sirens and emergency services showed up. On scene, there was a young rookie cop, Stephen Agrafisiotis. I'm so sorry, but I don't know how to say that name. We're going to call him Officer Stephen. He was the first one on scene. He's like the main guy for this whole case, so he's important. In the small town of Hookset, only about six police officers were all were on duty and they were all present that day. They took statements and noted that only one gunshot was heard. An early theory was possibly a stray bullet because there was a shooting range not too, too far from Danny's property, so I guess they thought it was like a stray bullet, and hunting, hunting season had, had also just started. But hunting that close to a pro- hunting that close to a property line, yeah, not very good sportsmanship. So a neighbor called Danny's brother Victor to let him know that there was an accident and then Danny had been hurt very badly. The hospital wasn't telling Victor very much, um, but he knew his brother was dead. Danny was thirty six when he died. And Victor basically kind of bullied the front desk nurse so that they would escort him back to the morgue and tell him what was going on because nobody, I guess everybody was scared to tell him. I'm not really sure. Um, so he was escorted to the morgue by the pathologist, the assistant, and two police officers. But I mean, it was a high-stress situation, so obviously he was upset. There was also a woman from the attorney general's office present in the corner. Danny was the ex-brother-in-law of the Attorney General's General for the State, Kathy McGuire. Corporal John Bartholomew was the state officer assigned to the case initially. He went out to do a survey and an initial investigation. He wasn't sure if this was a homicide or simply just an accident. Um, if it gets labeled as a homicide, the state of New Hampshire would have to send it to the Major Crimes Unit, and the Attorney General's Homicide Unit would take the evidence to court. Sunday, November 10th, 1985, the crew canvassed the area for the bullet casing that killed Danny. Officer Stephen video recorded the entire property and as much information as he could. Victor and Joanne stood and watched the investigators waiting for answers. One of the men that attempted CPR that day did a line around Danny's body in the sand to outline his position. The only blood found at the scene was in the middle where Danny was lying. Officer Stephen also climbed the tractor to get a view of the victim's point of view of the property. The investigators all agreed that the tree line was too far away from Danny was for it to have just been a stray bullet, roughly 300 yards away. Despite the reputation Danny and Victor had in the area about not being ones to mess with, they had a good relationship with the police. Officer Stephen walked the tree line in the video camera and made sure to get footage of that area and the view of the tractor from the area as well. After the search, it was pretty much treated like a homicide. New Hampshire State Police Major Crimes Unit took over at this point, Sergeant Roland Lamy was very well respected for his work and a little rough around the edges. He and Victor clashed immediately. Um, Lamy knew Victor was a biker, that he fought and was involved in drugs, and was not expecting much cooperation from him. And Victor seemed to think that Lamy wouldn't take his brother's case seriously and peg them as trash. 
Lamy initially interviewed Victor and asked all the, normal, all the normal questions. Where were you at this time? How Victor find out about the incident, etc. Lamy asked Victor what he thought happened, and Victor expressed that he was worried that he was supposed to be the target of the shooting, and his brother was mistaken for him and killed. Victor explained that he was having an affair with a married woman, and if the guy found out he was a welder and looked up Paquette's welding in the phone book, it was Danny's business that would have come up. The pathologist said that Danny was likely killed before he even hit the ground. The shooter was either extremely skilled or extremely lucky to make a shot that accurate over 300 yards away. Before they were able to find the bullet, another call came in that there were two more bodies from the woods found not far off where Danny was shot. Could they be connected? It ended up being a totally weird coincidence that there were two other victims found. I just thought it was kind of a weird, bizarre, like, link that there were two other deaths in the same area in this sleepy little town that nothing ever happens in. Alternatively, Danny's a murderer. <laughs> it's a good theory. They had to look into the possibility of a stray bullet, but it was such a precise shot in such a small area. If the shooter was five inches to the left or right, it would have hit something completely different. Apparently one mile directly from where Danny was standing, that's where the shooting range was. It was possible, but unlikely. Um, there was also, like, weirdly enough, a man videotaping from above. He was in a hot air balloon ride. Um, so they were hoping to get some, like, footage from that. That was usable. It turned out to be useless. But it was just an interesting little rabbit hole they had to go down. They even went as far as to, like, firing different kinds of guns to let the two men that were present on the property that day determine whether or not um, the kind of gun that they were shooting was the kind of weapon that might have killed Danny. Because at this point, they haven't found the bullet. Uh, the cops also write down license plates of the trucks and cars parked on the side of the road to see if they could connect any of the hunters um, with this incident. They asked hunters that were out that day to come forward with their weapons and try to rule them out as the killer, accidental or not. Obviously, some people complied, many did not. It was kind of a big uproar in the community. November 12th, 1985, a telephone lineman was investigating complaints from customers that their phone had gone out over the weekend. He was servicing those areas until he came across one telephone pole in front of Danny's place with a bullet lodged in the, in the uh, service thingy. He contacted the police when he heard that Danny had been shot and turned the evidence that he had in. The bullet did not did have blood on it, but in 1985, they were unable to definitively determine if it was Danny's blood or not. It also had white material determined to be bone fragments um, consistent with the injury, and the bullet came out of Danny's scapula. But it was a 270 rifle bullet. They believed that would be able to match the bullet with a weapon once it, a weapon was produced. This is like progress. There is a task force that they made for this case. Rumors were flying. Lamy was pretty sure at this point it was just a bizarre accident, but the town wasn't so sure. The police uh, contacted everybody that knew Danny and asked about the type of relationships he had with other people, if he had any enemies, all the normal questions. Uh, they spoke to all the neighbors to find out if anybody would want him dead. Most spoke well of him, but there was one female neighbor who had been friendly with Denise that said that Denise took off after there were rumors of Danny sexually assaulting one of the girls, and that's why she left. He had also, Danny had also been seeing a 15-year-old girl at the same time he was seeing Ruth that lived in the neighborhood. This is his second teenager that he's gone after. Mm -hmm. You're keeping track. The second. Know of. Yeah. Well, the third, really, if Melanie's case is true. 
Oh, that's true. There may have been some tension from that young girl's family. The housekeeper also mentioned that Danny had been overtly sexual with her and propositioned her on multiple times and made her feel uncomfortable. She also mentioned the name of a drug dealer that had an issue with Jan- with Danny, Jimmy Bulldog. Lamy interviewed a neighbor, a neighbor that had girls that used to play with Danny's kids. Lamy asked the girls if Danny had been inappropriate with him. They both denied it, but one of the girls was very upset by this line of questioning. That girl, Michelle, matched the description of the 15-year-old Danny had been seeing at his home. There was a gentleman that came forward as a false confession, claiming that he was paid to kill Danny. The details of his story didn't fit, and it was ruled out immediately. And they also checked out Jimmy Bulldog, but he was ruled out also. All the family members were interviewed, especially Melanie, who the family suspected was sexually abused by Danny. Melanie was very forthcoming with his abuse towards her mother, and his expectations were high. Melanie did eventually admit that Danny sexually assaulted her and another girl that would come over and play from the neighborhood. He stated that she was at a hockey game with a boy named Eric the day of Danny's death. Melanie's real dad was never questioned and quickly ruled out about the death. He really didn't have much contact or know much about Melanie's lives, life, so it was pretty sure that he didn't do it. They uh, interviewed Eric Winhurst to confirm Melanie's alibi. He had the same story. He was relaxed and helpful with the cops. He picked her up around 9 from her aunt's house, went to the game at Plymouth College. It was over around noon. They stopped at McDonald's for a burger, and he dropped her off at home at 2 p.m. so she could pack for the Canadian field trip she had coming up. Her father later called to say his son was told by Melanie that Danny was abusive toward her mother and sexually assaulted Melanie and a neighbor girl. A senior investigator stepped in and basically shut this case down, saying there wasn't enough evidence and that this whole thing was nothing more than a hunting accident. There was tons of suspects, with likely nothing linking any of them to Danny's case. Um, It was basically determined that the case would remain open and undetermined, that there were other cases that needed more attention. Victor was furious, and this is where he really ramped up fighting for a real investigation, because he didn't feel like the cops were doing anything they were supposed to be doing. So another theory or rumor that was going around is that a man called Nick Johnson had recently bought a rifle, but went into the gun store to return it, saying that it didn't feel right owning it after Danny died. So there was a lot of speculation that he could have been the one that killed Danny. This guy, Nick, lived in a commune, kind of a hippie-type situation, And he did sort of know Danny, but he was looked into and cleared. Um, He was shopping with other commune members at the time of Danny's death. So we know he couldn't have been it. Uh, Some think there was a biker behind the shooting. Some thought it was connected to an ex-girlfriend's drug dealer boyfriend who was contracted to kill the guy. Um, Some thought it was the Marine brother of of the 16-year-old girl that he was possibly assaulting but he was definitely the brother was definitely not even in Manchester. the cops also spoke with victor's married girlfriend about her husband if it was a possible suspect he was working 10 to 3 the day of danny's death and that was confirmed kathy kathy mcguire the attorney general was a suspect for a while she and her husband were filing for guardianship of melanie and when they found out danny would have to be notified they dropped the case kathy was aware of the abuse and melanie had confided in a counselor before she was quickly ruled out though but they were worried that, like, Kathy knew about the abuse and wanted him taken care of. 
So when Denise moved away from Danny after the possible allegations of abuse against Melanie, uh, they moved to Alaska. And in Alaska, her sister Pauline moved with her. And Pauline embezzled $24,000 from the company that she was working for. So there was some speculation that maybe Pauline used some of that money that she was embezzling to hire a hitman to kill Danny. This was looked at very hard and ruled out. The cops also looked at Ruth's sons, who definitely did not like Danny, but they both had alibis that checked out. So some people immediately thought of Coolidge, who had possibly killed Rena Paquette years earlier, but he was still in prison at the time of the murder, um, and he wasn't released until March 16th of 1991, but some people did kind of cling on to that whole theory. At this point, Victor fights very hard, though, to start looking into his mom's death as well, so he had a friend that was that agreed to pay for the exhumation of his mom's body to um, possibly convict Coolidge again on his mom's murder since he was getting out. There was semen found on her body. No one ever asked Arthur if his wife had and him had sex that morning. No samples were taken. So it's possible that Coolidge had raped her, but we won't know because um, Arthur was no longer alive to question about it. The cause of death was changed, though, from suicide to undetermined. In 1992, the Packettes and Barron were on a talk show, Kathy Burham, which apparently is a very popular talk show. I had never heard of it before. Because two separate anonymous people wrote letters with the same story identifying Eric Windhurst as the shooter in revenge for the abuse of his friend, Melanie Packett. With those letters, the police called Mr. Windhurst and questioned him and asked him to bring any two seventy rifles he had, Mr. Winters was compliant. The forensics teams determined that the bullets did not match any of the rifles presented. In 1993, a man, Michael Manzo, called Lamy and had a story of a prior, a prior girlfriend had told him. Melanie Paquette, five years earlier, told Manzo that she had her child-molesting dad killed. He said he didn't know if he believed her, but he felt like if the guy was a child molester, he deserved to die, so he kept it to himself. When Manzo told Lamy his story, they got a warrant and set up a sting phone call. She said that she was a little girl with a lot of trauma and she lied about all kinds of crazy things to get attention and that she didn't know anything about Danny's murder. She admitted to being unstable, but only was mad that the guy had the nerve to call her out of the blue and ask her about it. Um, she did have a little history of lying about all sorts of crazy things for attention that she was very upfront about. Um... Eric lawyered up very quickly at this point. Uh, counsel was well-known defense attorney Sisti. At this point, Lamy retired. Officer Stephen took over as chief. And he's in charge of the investigation going forward. Lawyers interviewed basically everyone that Eric knew from high school. Basically, no one claimed to know anything. Victor would call the police officers um, and anybody involved in, in his brother's case religiously every year. Um, and in 2003, there was a different answer that he got. Chief Stephen told him that he can't give much information, but they were working on something in 2003. Um, Chief Stephen hired a kind of a part-time investigator, Bill Shackford, that was specifically hired for this cold case. He And Shackford basically started from scratch, interviewed everybody, um, all the neighbors, everybody that knew Danny, 
he just started from scratch. He did come across a neighbor that was in middle school at the time of the shooting, but she happened to be home house-sitting for her parents who leave go to Florida for winter months. She mentioned that there was a blue or a black bug that was parked near a pond in walking distance of Danny's place. Eric Windhurst had a bug registered to his name at the time of the shooting. Shackford also interviewed another police officer that had been friends with Eric at the time. And... This police officer said Eric was an excellent marksman and that he made his own ammunition. He shot a 77 Ruger, and that gun shoots 270 rounds. He had re- Eric had received this gift um, from his dad for one of his birthdays, and Shackford also disproved the stray bullet theory completely with GPS. Uh, the shooting range was a straight line from where Danny was standing, It was, but it was uh, lower, so the the range was 370 feet lower than where Danny was at. So had they shot at Danny's direction, the bullet would have gone basically directly into the ground at some point. July 14th, 2004, Melanie was living in Boise, Idaho. The team flew and knocked on her door with a polygraph machine and asked if she would talk with them. They thought for sure she was just going to close the door and not agree to speak with them, but she did. Uh, They took her down to the station repeatedly told her that this conversation was her choice, that she could leave whenever she wanted. She agreed to the polygraph, but I think they kind of scared her with it. They told her, like, the polygraph machines were very accurate. Lies. And they did tell her that even though the polygraph machines weren't admissible in court and that she could stop whenever she wanted, that the polygraph machine was uh, would, would help them with their investigation, basically. Right. This is going to prove you guilty even though it does nothing for us in court. Yeah. So at this point, she asked for a minute. Uh, She started praying. She was, at this point, very involved in the LDS church, which... Lovely. Yeah. Um, Infamous. Uh, Basically, when they came back in, she told them everything. This is what she told them. That when she lived with Danny, he would rearrange the furniture, write weird shit on the walls, jump out and scare her in the dark. He killed her cat and laughed about it. He would make her hang a pull-up bar, hang from a pull-up bar and threaten to burn her with a torch if she let it go. He molested her. He burned live field mouse with a torch right in front of her. He would hold a pistol to her head and pull the trigger and tell her that all of this was their little secret. That if, um, that if she told him, told her mother or anyone else what he was doing, that he would do these things to her mother. Just torturing her and then, you know... Mm-hmm. Do it to everybody that you like. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah. She told all of this stuff to a counselor that her aunt had made her go to when she moved in with her aunt as a teenager. But the counselor didn't think to do anything? So the abuse was supposed to be a secret between the counselor, but the counselor had to tell her aunt, basically. Right. Um, and she had to report it for a state investigation. Now, this is important. So the counselor reported all the abuse that Melania told her about to, like, whatever DCF is called in child services in New Hampshire. And Danny doesn't know that Melanie lives back in this area. Like, as far as Danny knows, they're long gone and they'll never see him again. But she lived, like, one town over. So she didn't want Danny to find out she was that close, first of all. And she didn't want Danny to know that she told on him. Right. So she's freaking out in this moment. The best place to hide is right under his pillow. Yeah, because they know that she that the the investigators are going to go talk to Danny as part of the investigation and notify right. her. So she's completely freaked out. 
That night, she calls Eric Winhurst crying. She told him everything and that social services would be knocking on Danny's door any day to investigate and tell them that she lives in the area now. So Melanie was just completely freaking out and just kind of venting to her friend Eric. November 7th, 1985, Matt Quinn and Eric approached Melanie in the gym during a free period. They discussed the situation. They saw the terror in her eyes, and Eric asked her if she wanted Danny dead. She said that she did. Matt later tried to talk Eric out of there, out of it, and Eric swore he wasn't going to do anything. So November 9th, Eric called her that morning saying he was going to do it. She tried for a moment to talk him out of it, she said, but then she said, if you're going to do it, I'm going to go with you. He picked her up a few minutes later in his Volkswagen. They told her parents they were attending an out-of-town hockey game. He had his Ruger 77 in the back seat, already lo loaded with the bullets he made for it. He smeared his license plate with mud. They waited in the tree line until they had a, a shot, and they shot Danny. They ran out of there and drove away as calmly as he could. So he was driving away like as the emergency services were driving in. Which, that is like a movie scenario to me in my head. Like, that's exactly how it happened in the movies, but you oh, would absolutely. think it would never happen that way in real life. That's also a hell of a shot. Like, Damn. Well, he was well known to be a good marksman, as the town all said. So they go ahead and um, get, a, get, a, they get a warrant, and then she agrees to call Eric on the phone and try and get a confession on a taped phone call with Eric. They get hours of content, but he never confesses to anything. They never had anything that they could use in court. December 14, 2005, Eric was arrested. So when Quinn was interviewed, he, was, he told the same story as Melanie. Melanie's boyfriend at the time, back in the day, um, so Melanie's boyfriend's name was Andrew during the time that Danny died. Right. Andrew was also interviewed by the cops. He said that she had broken up with him that day and that he had heard about the shooting and confronted Eric, but Eric did not admit, admit anything to Andrew. But he definitely gave answers in a hypothetical format. Like, Andrew left the conversation with feeling like Eric did it. When Eric's sister-in-law was questioned, she told the cops everything she knew and that she had been one of the people to write the anonymous letters. And the other person that wrote the anonymous letter in to the cops, was, or to Victor, was um, one of Eric's friend's sisters, Ricky Patnude's sister, also wrote an anonymous letter. She told the cops everything she knew, but it was all secondhand information. So it was You're all saying? like, yeah, someone told me this, and, you know. But they, I guess they felt like at this point they had enough to indict Eric with, um, I guess, Melanie's confession. I guess they felt like they had enough to indict him. A little sketch, but all right. Yeah. So the prosecutor kind of had a problem with the case. He didn't feel like the motive was enough. Um, so he did some digging. Christine Winhurst, an ex of Eric's brother, said it was possible that Eric's dad sexually abused his stepsisters. So for Eric, the prosecutor's thinking for Eric, this may have been a little bit more personal. That he was killing Danny, a child molester, because he couldn't do it to his dad, I guess, is what the prosecutor is trying to line up. Um, she said Eric's sister confirmed it to her. Lisa, the sister, confirmed the abuse with the police. She said that it started when she was 10. She said that Eric and Scott were very young. The mom, Barbara, didn't know, and that, it, and that they kept it to themselves because Eric's dad, Mr. Winhurst, told them that it would ruin their mother. So instead of his actions having consequences he deserves, it would be their fault and not 
it would be the kid's fault and not their and their mother would be heartbroken. Basically, he put the blame on the children. Right. Which is fucked up. Unfortunately, the other sister, Kimberly, was unable to be interviewed to confirm any of this because she had passed away from a tragic accident um, in 1990. There's a lot of tragic accidents in this town. I know. That's that's another reason I thought this story was it's so messed up. But I thought it was so interesting because it was like, this crazy stuff happened and this crazy stuff. This doesn't seem real. Like, this is just so much chaos. Like a really big domino effect. Yeah, it's wild. And there was actually another thing that I actually had cut from my notes, but Danny was in a motorcycle accident and one of the girlfriends he had was on the back of the motorcycle and she had passed away like a few years before he died. Like just crazy, crazy stuff. This doesn't seem like a real thing. It's it's terrible. So Eric was the one that told his mother of the abuse much later. When his mother confronted Mr. Winterst about it, it, his justification was that the girls came onto him and that it was better for him to show them sh- show them than some boy down the street. So he was doing the girls a favor, right? Okay. By sexually That's abusing disgusting. them. Yeah. So unfortunately, even though they, they knew that Eric's dad had been sexually assaulting his uh, sisters, the burden of proof and statute of limitations for felonious sexual assault in the early 70s had way expired. So there was really nothing anybody could do. Right. But the... the uh, Prosecutor felt like he had effectively would effectively be able to squash the third party self defense strategy that Eric's lawyer was trying to go for. I get what he's saying. He had all this trauma, and then he sees another girl in trouble, mm-hmm. and he thinks this time he can actually do something about it, and he steps in. Yeah. So he was Eric was arrested December fourteenth, two thousand five, on his construction job site. He went peacefully. But the whole thing about whether or not Eric was doing it for Melanie as third-party self-defense or he was doing it for himself as, like, a vindictive kind of thing, the whole thing depends on whether or not he knew about it at the time of Danny's death. And according to Eric and his siblings, Eric didn't know about the abuse at that point. He didn't find out about it until later. So that's kind of where the defense thing kind of was shaky yeah Yeah. but they i mean that's still what they went with in court so i just thought we should kind of take a little snippet here and talk about like how eric and melanie's relationship just briefly so they met playing soccer shortly after she moved to new hampshire august 27th 1985 she was the only girl on the team her new school didn't have a girls team and she became fast friends with eric now of course she had a little crush on him but he didn't see her that way. Um, she adjusted well to her new school and made friends easily. She got along with her uncle. And, you know, she had some normal teenage angst stuff with her aunt. Like, they didn't get along super well. Um, but she was helpful around the house and kept in contact with her mom. And she seemed happy. Eric's family owned property. They had cabins where the high school parties were often thrown. He's very handsome and very popular. Um, on New Year's Eve in 1985, Eric confessed to his brother, Trapper, and his sister, sister-in-law, Martha, that he killed Danny Peckett. I'm sorry, Trapper? Yeah, that's his the kid's name. name. Is Trapper? Mm-hmm. That's like Hunter 2.0. Yep. Okay. Um, the three of them told Eric's family that day. This is the day that Eric's dad made that call regarding the allegations of abuse against Danny um, on Melanie. So... The cops had, inter- right after the death, the cops interviewed, so the death happened in November, he confessed to his family in New Year's Eve that same year. So the cops were investigating him, right? 
So he's feeling the pressure. He told his family about it. And this is when his dad was like, all right, let's push the heat onto, like, kind of away from Eric, I guess. So he made that phone call, letting them know of the abuse on Melanie. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there was rumors, like, going on for years that Eric is the one that, that did it. There was also, like, like everybody in town kind of knew. But nobody said anything because Danny Paquette was a piece of shit. Yeah, basically. I mean, you can only screw so many people's teenage daughters before the whole town just kind of, like, lets it go. being murdered. Yeah. So, Eric um, had a tumultuous relationship with a young woman named Thea right after high school. He was still hanging out with Melanie when she moved back um, to New Hampshire. In 1987, he joined the Marines. Uh, in boot camp, he was bit by an ant and had an anaphylactic, anaphylactic reaction. And the Marines medically discharged him. He was crushed. He moved back home. He moved to Colorado for a bit. He caught a charge for second-degree burglary and moved back home again. He attended his court-mandated probation and AA meetings. He finally decided to get it together. He started going to mechanic school in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, He worked at a shop in Breckenridge, Colorado. Things were great. When the police started poking around again, he went back home in May of 1992. Um, And that's when he picked up a construction job and stuff. But he definitely had some rocky, like, early 20 years where he was kind of getting in trouble and messing up. and. But, like, he picked a direction for his life and that didn't work out and he was crushed and then shit went wrong. Mm-hmm. But then, like, as soon as it started going right again, that's when Melanie's yeah. just like, oh. I well, I mean, it sounds very quick, but that was, like, a full 10 years. Like, he had been, so he moved back home in 1992. He didn't get arrested in 2005. So he had, like, 12 years right there to, like really established himself in the community and he stayed out of trouble and he worked really hard and he actually had this like nurse girlfriend that he wanted to get married to and they were building a house together and like he kind of like was turning his life around and then this stuff came all out of the woodwork again that sucks because it's like yeah you're not even really the same person at that point mm-hmm. yep back to the trial stuff um december 22nd 2005 Eric was arraigned. He entered a no-guilty plea for first-degree murder. Again, he had a really good reputation in town. He did get in trouble when he was younger, but he got himself on track when he was about 21 years old. He was well-liked and well-respected. It's weird to me they went for first-degree murder. I know. I was just thinking that. Like, I would have thought, like, second, because I don't know. Like, I guess there had to be, like, some level planning to drive there with a gun, but, like... I mean, just the fact that he was 16 or 17 at the time, yeah, I'm not I feel like, yeah. So much as, like, spur of the moment, a lot of emotions. Yeah. Yeah. So his lawyers felt good about the acquittal because he was generally a good person, and he did a thing at 17 to a crazy child molesting abuser. So I guess the lawyers felt like they were like, yeah, we can get him off. That third-party self-defense plea was rejected um, the murder trial was slated for August 28, 2006. Robert Lynn was the presiding judge, and he was—he had a very interactive style in the courtroom and a great reputation. Which was rejected by the judge? Yeah. I didn't realize they could just be like, no, not allowed. Yeah, like, before, like, everything goes to trial, they kind of have to basically present, like, a preliminary outline of their case to the judge. Um, and the judge can go, yeah, that's not going to work. Like, I know you have to, like... The judge has to, like, accept your plea. I just always thought that was more of a formality, I guess, than... Oh, yeah. 
the plea part really is, but like your defense strategy or your um, well, isn't that part of the plea? Not guilty by reason of whatever, whatever. Sort of, yeah. But by the time it actually goes to like that part, it's already been done because like most of the time, those little things are kind of done in the judge's office, kind of like as paperwork's being filed back and forth. Yeah. yeah. They have like little meetings. Uh, Sisty tried to have the taped phone calls and testimony from Judge Kathleen McGuire, that's Melanie's aunt, um, that was caring for her, thrown out. Uh, Judge Lynn allowed both as evidence to the trial. Sisty also wanted Melanie's counselor to be a witness to support the abuse against Melanie. Uh, the counselor, Upton, was now living in Florida and too elderly to be, like, a witness. Elderly and ill to be, like, a witness. They didn't have Zoom back then. Right. And they they tried to get the records, but they weren't able to be found. June 23rd, 2006, Sisty wanted the records from Danny Pickett's hospital stay and Melanie's counselor's notes to prove the level of fear there. Judge Lynn says the self-defense requires imminence and denied it. So basically, because there was, like, a plan before, self he says self-defense had to be, like, basically if someone was coming at you and you shoot them, like, that's the only way self-defense would work. I feel like that's not true i know because to me the eminence in their 17 year old brains was he's going to find out Stan, and when he does he will be coming after me yeah i think that would count and i feel like there's precedence for something like that counting mm -hmm. but maybe that's like later precedence and not at the time because it's hard yeah. to i know. mean this was 2006 like yeah i don't know um that's weird to me, but I guess it's also, like, state by state and, like, all that other crap. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, obviously, I think they should both have done some time. But, like, I'm kind of okay that with how it turned out for Melanie, but I don't think that first degree was first really reasonable for him. Maybe we're too easy on killers. I don't know. I don't feel like I am because... No, I feel like when you're, like, a cold-blooded, like, honest-to-God murderer. Yeah. First-degree life, whatever, you absolutely deserve it. And I feel like there have been cases where they didn't get that, and they got away with second-degree murder mm -hmm. completely disagreed with. Yeah, same. And, like, the demon guy, he got off way too easy. No, the, the, the guy who was like, oh, no, it wasn't my fault that I did the murder. I was possessed. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Bono. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Bono. Um... I just think, in general, maybe we're too easy on young murderers, maybe? I don't know. We'll see, but, like, we didn't even release this, that one episode. About oh, yeah, because we went so hard on that kid. On that little 14-year-old kid. When we went back to listen to it, we were like, okay, we're, okay, they're, they're children. Maybe we were going a little hard. So we didn't even release that episode. Yeah, but. What case was that? He kind of deserved it. Tristan Bailey down in Tampa. Yeah, we went hard on that little boy. Like, hard. So, I mean, I don't he know. lured her out by a pond and yeah. stopped her, like, a thousand For no times. reason. <laughs> for, yeah, no discernible. I don't even think they were friends, so, like, They weren't. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. I don't know. I don't know. I just don't think. I think second degree would have been. I think second degree would have been fair, too. Fair. What is that, like, I 10, 15 years? Honestly, yeah, I think five to ten would have been fine. Yeah. But I think more than that is honestly just, like. Oh, he's, like, already turned his life around. He's already yeah. done all the work. He's like, proven to be a good citizen. Like, I feel like... He did something stupid as a kid that was, like, very emotionally fueled. Yeah. And I feel like he was put in a position where he didn't really know 
what else to do? Like, your friend comes to you and she's like, I'm afraid for my life. Yeah. And you actually have the ability to do something about it. Right. It was poor judgment, obviously. Absolutely, but you don't have a fully formed, like, judgment-making brain, so... I mean, and she was probably genuinely terrified. And she, I don't know, probably had a right to be. Yeah. This man's proven to be violent. It's not like... Yeah. She had no reason. Yeah. And clearly the town didn't give a shit. This went on for 20 years. Everybody knew what happened, and everybody was like, eh, okay. Whatever. (laughs) I don't know. Not that you should let, you know, the general town just... Decide who's guilty and who's not. Yeah. But... Um, yeah. Maybe we're hard on shitty people in general. And being I think so, so hard on Danny is what makes it so easy to forgive his murder. I I think that's a problem for me, too. I'm like, he was clearly a shitbag. I don't... Like, sorry, I know we're not supposed to say that about the victim of murders... But, like, but this guy had it coming. he deserved to be in prison, and nobody was going to do anything about that, so, I don't know. I don't think he should have died. That's not what I'm getting I'm at. He should have died. I'm just saying... I also get why he died. Put shit in, get shit out. And yeah. Like... Yeah. So, Streslin, the prosecutor, was getting a lot of heat for going after Danny because... Or, going after Eric because Danny was kind of a shitbag. But Streslin's whole... And the murder was so old. Yeah. But Streslin's whole uh, thought was like, why would Eric have killed Danny but not his dad? Like, why did his dad get to live? Because it, it just said, and vigilante justice sets a bad precedent. So basically he was like, it's not equal and vigilante justice is bad. We can't just all go around and do what we think is right. See, and I think... In our own personal ways. That- why he killed Danny and not his dad very much has to do with the present threat that Danny was presenting because his dad wasn't going to kill his sisters. Right. Like, the molestation was fucked up. Don't uh, get me obviously. Wrong. Like, absolutely. Yeah. But there was horrendous. no eminent threat to them at that right. point. Yeah. Their lives weren't in danger, but as far as he saw it, like, his friend's life was legitimately in danger. Yeah. So Sisti presented his case to Judge Lynn for the third-party self-defense in private review. The judge declined it and stood with the prosecution that it was premeditated. So Eric's case is pretty much dead, and he goes for a plea deal. Um, August 24, 2006, Eric Winhurst pled guilty to second-degree murder, 15 to 36 years, possibility of parole. Eric apologized to Danny's family for what he had done. The Peckett's witness statement was angry and unrelenting and spoke of all the Winhurst's dirty laundry. But, I don't know, what I did, like, read in the book Eric's, like, apology to Danny's family, and it felt sincere to me. Like, I know that's not fair, but it it did. It felt sincere to me. I just want to... Probably more sincere than he deserved, in my opinion. Agreed. And also... How about the but absolute I feel like, bullshit of airing all of their dirty laundry about his dad being a pedophile, which is Well, they were not awful. classy people, these peckets. I know, but so was his fucking brother. Yeah. Like, you're not any better. He did the same shit, so I don't know why you think that that's going to get anybody's sympathy from anyone. Yeah. The other thing for me is I feel like 
if Victor had been in the same situation, like if Victor found out that Danny was messing with his little girl or something, do you honestly think that Victor wouldn't have killed Danny himself? I don't know. You know, like that's just my opinion. But I don't know. It is hard to like feel that sad that Danny died. Like I don't really feel sad that he died. Like I feel sad that Eric made that decision for himself and ruined his own life and stuff. Right. Agreed. Yeah. So for Melanie's trial, uh, Judge Lynn was also in Melanie's case. Melanie was facing felony hindering apprehension. She went to court on December 1st, 2006. Streslin's deal for Melanie was that she plead guilty to the felony hindering apprehension and asked that it all be, sus- like, her punishment be suspended due to the abuse that she suffered. So basically she would be charged with it, <coughs> but there would be no consequences for her. Unless she committed another crime. Basically. But again, she's lived a good life. Just like Eric lived a good life. She got off so fucking easy. I know, and I felt like they really threw the book at him. And they, I don't understand why they did that. I mean, I it don't... It makes th- no sense to me. I kind of agree that... I mean... She helped plan it. She went with him. Like, she was mm-hmm. present when it happened. So and I then there was like- a lot of argument as to whether or not she pointed Danny out. Because if she pointed Danny out, that would be a different charge. They ended up not going with that, but there was a lot of back and forth about whether or not you pointed at him or if you were just there when it was happening. I mean, it's I'm like sure she pointed him out. Looks like, and there was another grown ass man there. I'm sure she pointed to the right one because he didn't yeah. shoot the wrong guy. Yeah, it's not that I think they should have gone harder on her because I think all said and done, like fine, whatever. She got basically no time, but it's on her record. Yep. But I feel like they should have gone lighter. On Eric. I agree. He was 17. He made a really bad choice. And he deserved to be punished. But that's a long ass time. She had only told three people about the whole thing. And this is just another one of those wild, like, little trails. And I didn't even put them all in in here because there was so many in the book that I read. There was this wild little trail that she told three people about the murder. She told her mother... Um, her husband, and her old nanny, Wendy. They tried to track Wendy down, but she had unfortunately passed away at 46 years old. Um, Wendy had a history of substance abuse after a traumatic event. So Wendy was kidnapped at knife point, taken down a secluded location, and she was raped. After that whole incident, she spiraled hard and passed away from drug abuse and stuff at a young age. But, like, that's just another one of those, like, bizarre, like... Like violence just like hovers around the people of yeah. this town yeah that's yeah it was like town is cursed i don't know what something. kind of burial ground y'all are built on but yeah for real um somebody needs to make some reparations um so basically nobody could prove that she pointed at danny so it wasn't conspiracy to commit murder she just charged she just got charged with the i absolutely think uh felony hindering apprehension if it deserved charging him with first degree, she absolutely deserved. She got second. He got second degree after it was all. But over. he was charged with first degree. Yeah, I'm saying she should have been charged with the conspiracy, even if she wound up taking a plea deal that didn't include it. Yeah. Um, if we're looking at fairness here, but this honestly feels like, oh, she's just a girl. She didn't know what she was doing. Emotions, uteruses, and the um, and she got off easy. The family witness statement for Melanie was harsher than it was for Eric from the Paquette family. Which is insane because this is like the actual victim of your brother's abuse you're going after so fucking hard here. Well, they basically said it was all her fault. Yeah. 
Um, they even, the Packets even went as far as to track down Danny and Denise's firstborn son and have him do an impact statement saying that, um, the chance to meet his biological father was taken from him by Melanie. Like they had him come to the, it was a whole thing. It was very dramatic. I don't think you wanted to meet him, sir. It, you would think not. Like if even a quarter of the stuff that she said is true, even a quarter, like you, you did not want to meet this man. No, you better just be super fucking happy that you were raised adopted by yeah, and raised by better, better people. Hopefully, people. um, her story to the judge was basically that she didn't think he was actually going to do it. Um, the judge accepted her plea to felony uh, hindering apprehension, but denied the suspension of punishment. She was sentenced to three to six years in the end, which I. I, 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 I kind of think it's fair. So, um, she winds up probably doing three years. Yeah. How long was Eric in prison? So she appealed for a lighter sentence and won. She was released March 1st of 2008 uh, after 15 months. All right. Um, and again, Eric really does show true remorse and he knows he deserves prison. Um, he doesn't believe he deserves a full life when he gets out. Um, so he's doing, like, the sad sack, I hate myself route, and just taking whatever they give him. Yeah, he's basically martyring it up pretty hard, like... Ugh. That's annoying, honestly. Like, if you um, were that... If you were that remorseful, and you absolutely, like, believe that you did not ever deserve, like, a life or whatever, and you don't deserve a life after prison, why didn't you come forward sooner? Why are you going to wait mm-hmm. until after it's a good the question. ball unravels and then be like, oh, woe is me. I'm a terrible person. Mm-hmm. That's kind of pissing me off a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, Eric was granted parole on October 15, 2020. He had a spotless record in prison. He showed two remorse and he has a job in housing lined, lined up outside. He also kind of looks like Luke Wilson to me just a little bit. Just as a side note. <laughs> so he's out now. Is he related to Owen Wilson? Yeah. It's brothers. Cool. Not relevant, just I thought it was funny. <laughs> I feel like the name is so familiar, but I'm not getting a face. So yeah, that is the weird twisty turny story of Danny Beckett. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Tell us if you think uh, he deserved the full sentence or if he deserved more. How do you feel about Melanie's sentence? Yeah. Yeah, I do actually want to know how you guys feel about Melanie's sentence. I kind of feel like a couple, like 15 months is kind of fair. (laughs) That's what she ended up, you know, after it was all said and done, 15 months. I think that's fair. See you next time. But like, how many, so how, how long was that for him? 14 years. years. Yeah, 14 years. Okay, well. 2006 to 2020, 14 years. Yep. Only a year in trial and 13 years after the trial. So maybe it, I don't know. I think 10 years would be a little bit more fair, but. I think it all worked out in the wash. It is what it is. All right. Bye. Bye.